1972, Larry Norman released an album with the title Only Visiting This Planet. And those of you of a certain generation will love that album. On that album is a song called Reader's Digest. Towards the end of the song is this line. What a mess the world is in. I wonder who began it. Don't ask me. I'm only visiting this planet. I doubt very much whether Larry Norman had the book of Ecclesiastes in mind when he wrote that song. But I think he's hit upon a deep truth and one that we mostly want to avoid. It is the truth that we are, in fact, only visiting this planet. At the end of the song is this line. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. Larry Norman is right. He is absolutely right. This world is not our home. We are just passing through. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 last week showed us that life is short. It is elusive. It is repetitive. We don't leave anything of lasting value. Life is messy. It is complex. It is disappointing. And sometimes it is tragic. And we are not in control. The tragedy is that we want to make it our home. We want to settle, achieve, control, gain, and find satisfaction. And and Ecclesiastes, the teacher in Ecclesiastes, desperately wants us to understand that that is just an illusion. This world is not our home. It desperately wants us to live in the light of the truth that we are just passing through. But friends, we are really slow to learn. How much do you think about the truth that you are just passing through this world? How much do you live in the reality that you are in fact only visiting this planet? How much do you live your life centered around the truth that this world is not your home? The teacher invites you to think about these things and engage with them seriously, and that's why we're going to stick with the text, however difficult that becomes. The problem the teacher wants to probe and challenge, and I believe set us free from, is the problem that we think this world is our home. Why do you think Jesus later says these words? Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. For where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. Jesus desperately doesn't want us to think that this world is our home. Don't amass it down here where rust and moth are going to destroy it. Put it where it's eternal. This world is not your home. Trouble is, it seems to me that we miss the point and we strive for gain, for satisfaction. We live as if our greatest treasures are here and now. And our own lifestyles reflect our sense of permanence in the world. 
The teacher is now going to speak from experience, from his own pursuit of his lifestyle choices. And his conclusion will cause us to think about our own lives. But it will also point to something really, really profound and significant. The teacher will invite us to think about life, this life, with all its pleasures, all those things we desperately want us to bring satisfaction and happiness. The teacher will again invite us to think about them in the light of the truth that one day we will die. The teacher will invite us to see the possibility, though, that joy is possible in this life, And that maybe it's death that shows us how. So I'm going to read a great chunk of Ecclesiastes today, beginning of uh, chapter 1, verse 12, going through to the end of chapter 2. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all things that are done under the sun, all of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly, but I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow, the more knowledge, the more grief. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness, and what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasures of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor. And this was the reward for my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done, and all that I had taught to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than has already been done? I say that wisdom is better than folly and light is just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads while the fool walks in darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless, for the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered, and the days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. So I hated life, because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had taught for under the sun, because I must leave them to one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. 
Yet they will have control over the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all their toil and anxious striving in which they labor under the sun? All their days their work is grief and pain. Even at nights their mind do not rest. This too is meaningless. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So in this section of the book, the teacher is he's about to perform a test and he's going to test out what he thinks is true about life under the sun. Happiness is what we live for. Pretty much everything you've done already today, you've done because in one way or another it makes you happy. We live mostly to make ourselves feel good. Think about it. All of life's pursuits, all the things we follow to bring us happiness, earning a living, finding a spouse, raising good children, having fun, keeping fit. We want to be happy in everything we do. Think about it this way. When was the last time you chose to do something and you knew would make you unhappy? Well, we don't do that, do we? We want to shape and control our world so that everything we do brings us the happiness we desire. So the test the teacher takes on is to see if this actually works. Now it's worth pointing out at this point um, that what follows the teacher does it deliberately and thoughtfully and he actually says, I never lost my wisdom through the whole of this process. So this isn't just going off the rails and having a good time and not realising what he's doing. This is a calculated experiment to find out if it works. Um, And uh, a lot of people think that Solomon wrote this book. That's debatable. That's why I haven't used his name. I'm going to stick with the teacher because nobody actually knows. Lots of people like to think it's Solomon because it talks about being the king in Jerusalem. Uh, And Solomon didn't end his life well, but he was very wise at the beginning of his life. And if he did write these words, he's still very wise. This is an experiment done knowing what he's doing. He really wants to know the answer. So the teacher seeks happiness, and he seeks it in the only ways that he can under the sun. And there are ten ways you can seek to find happiness. And there are still only ten ways people can seek to find happiness, and you probably know them well, because in truth you've probably tried them, and you're probably still trying some of them now. So in chapter 1, verses 12 to 18, he tries wisdom and knowledge. He gets the best education he can, believing it will bring him happiness. In chapter 2, verse 2, he tries entertainment, laughter, jokes. In chapter 2, verse 3, he goes for alcohol, wine. In chapter 2, verse 4, he tries art. He designs lots of buildings. In chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, he looks to the natural world by making gardens and all the pretty stuff. Verses 7 and 8 of chapter 2, it's money and possessions. Verse 8, again, he tries sex to bring him happiness. Uh, in verse 8, he, tries to, he plunges into the world of music. Chap- in verse 9, he seeks affirmation from others, what we might call fame. Come and look what I've done. 
In chapter 2, verse 11, it's all that his hands has done, his work in which he seeks happiness. And what the teacher discovers, what he learns from his test, is none of these things can bring him the happiness his heart desires. What he learns is it simply doesn't last. The man who had everything anyone could ever want for looks back on his experiment with life and says he gained nothing. His great search for happiness has in fact proved that happiness is like a breath or the breeze or the mist or a puff of smoke. It eludes us. To live in pursuit of happiness in this way is in truth, he says, like a chasing after the wind. And there is one thing that lurks on the horizon that thwarts all his attempts in these ways to find lasting gain and happiness. It's a bit like what the teacher's doing here is blowing up balloons only to have them popped by what lurks on the horizon. And uh, at this point I need to warn you I'm going to do something that might go wrong. If it doesn't go wrong, it won't be loud. If it does, it will be. But it wasn't in the first service, so you have nothing to worry about. I need the music group, because I counted. There's eight of you. So if you'd like to come up here. And then I need two other willing volunteers. So that will be Ian Warner and, let me see, uh, Sue Lindridge. Lovely. Thank you very much. And all you have to do is hold your balloon with the word that's on it facing outwards. And if I've counted right, we'll be done. Oh, different one this time. <laughs> oh, I might have miscounted. Right, I need another willing volunteer. Who would that be? Lisa, thank you very much. <laughs> you just happened to be looking at me at the wrong point. Oh, Pete's decided to stay down there. There you go, Pete. He's part of the music group, but he's staying down there. Right. So. No, you weren't listening, Pete. <laughs> It's always good to stay concentrated, especially when you get picked on, because your sins will find you out, (laughs) especially in church. So what the uh, teacher is doing, he's saying, look, it's a bit like blowing up balloons, but there's one thing that's going to wreck it all, and it's that thing called death. And death comes along, just keep hold of it tight, Mm -hmm. and it doesn't last. Oh. Money doesn't work. Alcohol doesn't work. Can't find it in art. None of them last. It's like blowing up balloons. I need to have them pop. Because death lurks in the background. Thank you very much. I wanted to put a big label, death, on this, but I couldn't figure out how to do it and still use the scissors. 
We don't want to think about death, so we plunge ourselves into all these distractions in the only way that we can. The teacher says, well, you can do that, but eventually your balloon will burst. It doesn't last. It won't bring you what you think you want. So how are you doing, friends? Perhaps another more challenging question would be this. What balloon might you be pursuing against all hope that it won't burst? One commentator writes about it by living in a bubble. What bubble are you living in that you're hoping against hope is not going to burst? We're going to stick with the text. Here's a really important point to make. The teacher is not making the point that wisdom, laughter, alcohol, art, nature, money, possessions, music, sex, affirmation, or work are wrong in themselves. That is not what he is saying, and it would be wrong to interpret it from that text. The problem with them is is that they become for us ways to find satisfaction or happiness. And the teacher says you can't do it. Two really important things are coming together here through the teacher. The first one is what we talked about last week and it strikes us as a bit of an odd thing to say. It is the truth that the beginning of living comes with the acceptance of the truth that we will in fact one day die. That sits uneasily with us, doesn't it? And on its own, it would probably remain an uneasy thing. But we must live in the reality that we are not God, we are not in control, and one day we will die. We are just passing through. Anything else is simply an illusion. The second thing the teacher wants us to see is the limit of wisdom, laughter, alcohol, art, nature, money and possessions, music, sex, affirmation, work. The teacher says that the limit is that they were never meant to bring us the satisfaction we desire. That's not what they're made for. Living in the truth about our own death frees us to see the limitations of the things we pursue. And these two things together open the possibility for something far better that the teacher is going to hint at right at the end of chapter 2. See, at the end of chapter 2, we see for the first time what is possibly the main message of the book of Ecclesiastes. It is that living in God's world is gift, not gain. Living in God's world is gift, not gain. And these things we've talked about are actually God's gracious gifts given to us so that we can enjoy life. That's what they're made for. These gifts were never given to us for our gain and ultimate satisfaction. But in truth, that's what we most often do with them. We pursue them for our gain, our satisfaction, and our happiness. We take goods gifts and we try to use them to secure our ultimate gain. And we get ourselves 
in an awful mess. Um, ministers do it as well, you know. One of the biggest challenges that ministers have is that if they're not careful, their whole identity becomes wrapped up in what they do. They don't do anything else. I was chatting to a minister of long standing not very long ago, and when I asked him what he liked to do, he had no answer for me. You know, and the reason is because all he ever did was church. All he ever did. He has nothing else. And now, because he doesn't get all that, he has no idea how to live life. He's looking in the wrong place for affirmation. When that's taken away, you have nothing. That's the tragedy. God's gifts are just that. They are gifts. The reality of death puts these gifts in their proper context. They are gifts to be enjoyed. If you look carefully at verses 1, from chapter 1, verse 12, all the way through to chapter 2, verse 22, you may have noticed as I read it that God is not mentioned at all. God is completely absent from the text. All those verses about the teacher striving to find the happiness he longs for. And it's the teacher who's doing the striving. God isn't part of the equation. And he can't do it. It simply doesn't work. But in verses 24 to 26, God is mentioned three times. You might have noticed that. And the emphasis each time is on what God gives. Eating and drinking are ordinary things we do every day. Would I be right? Yeah, apart from perhaps on a Wednesday, if you like me, you fast for the church, and then you don't eat. But most of the time, eating and drinking are ordinary things we do every day. And usually we think of that basic thing as a means to go on and do something bigger and better. We eat because we want to go off and do whatever it is. We eat because we're going to work. We eat because we're going to go and play football. We eat because we're going to go and drive the car. Eating and drinking become just a means to an end. But what if, what if the daily pleasure of food is a gift we ungratefully overlook? What if it's not really meant to be a means to an end? Ordinarily, we work not just to earn a living, but to find satisfaction and purpose and achieve success. And we spend our lives, don't we, career planning. You know, what's going to be my next career move? What if work was never meant to be about making us successful? What if it was meant to make us grateful, faithful, generous. The teacher invites us to a better way to live than to live the illusion. The teacher invites us to a different way of finding meaning and satisfaction. It's better because it's not a chasing after the wind. It's not trying to catch your breath or a breeze or like chasing after the wind. It is both simple and profound. Real, deep, lasting satisfaction comes from God's giving. When we see ourselves and God's gifts in their true perspective, then we are free to live and to live well. 
when we see that God's gifts are not meant to be a stepping stone to other things, when we realize we were not meant to rule the world, when we realize that we were not meant to achieve ultimate gain or satisfaction from our success, then we can find joy in the ordinary things God gives us in life. Perhaps the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved that he gave. Actually, he's always giving. Every day, gifts to us for us to enjoy. When we live in the reality of our certain death, when we see that God is the one who graciously and generously gives, when we accept life and its pleasures as a gift, then the extraordinary life we live has the opportunity to become truly an extraordinary life. And one the teacher, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, so longs for us to live. Now, if you've struggled to understand anything that I've said, maybe you'll find these words of this song helpful, because it's exactly the same thing in a slightly different way. ocean and the waves of fear are starting to grow doubts and questions are rising with the tide so I'm clinging to the one sure thing I know I will hold on to the hand of my Savior, I will hold on with all my mind. I will hold loosely to things that are fleeting and hold on to Jesus. I will hold on to Jesus for life. I've tried to hold many treasures That just keep slipping through my fingers Like sand But there's one treasure Means more than breath itself So I'm clinging to it with everything I am I will hold 
into the hand of my Savior. I will hold on with all my mind. I will only lose the things that are fleeting and hold on to Jesus. I will hold on to Jesus for life like a child holding on to a promise. I will cling to His Word and believe as I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Oh, I will hold on to the hand of my Savior. I will hold on with all my mind. I will hold loosely the things that are fleeting and hold on to Jesus. I will Hold on to Jesus for life. Amen.